just with the actors that we have, they're so much fun. They're so engaging. They have a lot of goodwill. And, you know, I wanted it to be like an intense but really fun ride as well. You know, like I want, there was this online community, obviously, that this whole movement, this like dissatisfaction happening, this yearning to connect. And it felt like a perfect opportunity to try and bring that to the theater. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. And in this week's episode, we've got Dumb Money director Craig Gillespie talking about the latest film coming out from Sony Pictures Entertainment that is out in limited release this Friday. It's going to be expanding through the month of September. This movie is based on real-life events, the GameStop meme stock saga. It's a tongue twister. I'm not going to get too involved in it. But you guys remember, in the pandemic, a couple of retail stocks weren't doing that well. AMC Entertainment was one of them. The other one was a retail store called GameStop. For the video game fans, a group of investors on Reddit decided to put a bunch of money into that stock. And the movie is now coming out on Friday from Sony. I'll be talking to the director in the feature segment of this week's episode. We've got Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor over at Box Office Pro. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast in this weird, slow news week. Not, not much, by the way, of news to talk about. We've got coming out next weekend, other than a limited release from Dumb Money, really nothing major on a wide perspective up until the release of Expendables 4 in late September. So in this mid-September frame, we're going to talk about what happened in the prior weekend. Uh, the Nun 2 and My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3 both opened 40 percent below their predecessors not great news but on the plus but side at the same time not awful like it's not yeah it wasn't an, an end of the world you know gross for either of those films and i know none two is doing rather well internationally talking about international grocers we had a surprise entry in the top five here domestically rebecca a hindi language title jawan coming in with one of the biggest movie stars in the world breaking in the top mm -hmm. five in north america I mean, how much of a surprise is it really that, that a movie with Shah Rukh Khan is going to make a ton of money? But, you know, it's, it's true that up until this point, you know, Bollywood films hitting big at the box offices has only really been something that's hit the mainstream here in, in North America within these last few years. Jawan starring uh, Shah Rukh Khan, who also starred in the Hindi language film Patan, which earned a lot of money when it came out in North America back in January, February. It actually got to 6.1 million over the weekend, putting it in fourth place. Uh, Pathan, by comparison, got 6.9 million. So yeah, it's something to definitely to keep an eye on as these, as these Hindi language films come out, because there's definitely a market for them. They're fun as hell, and they work on the big screen. And it's, again, we're broken records here on the podcast. We always talk about the importance of having a diverse slate that appeals to different people. Jawan coming in and breaking into the top five in a weekend that the top grossing movie was a sequel about a scary nun. That's good. That's important. I didn't watch the scary nun movie. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen either of the scary nun uh, universe films, but I am a big horror fan. I know you're a big horror fan as well, Rebecca, and because it is a slow news week. And we're approaching spooky season. When does spooky let's, season let's start out officially? About spooky season. Yeah. I mean, I think spooky season. I, I don't know. It's like when does the summer movie season start? We're already seeing 
Halloween candy in stores. So maybe it's already here. I don't know. It's always spooky season in my heart. I like the way you think about this. Uh, and I agree. It's always spooky season in our hearts. And when we talk about the theatrical experience, uh, we do have to talk about one of the genres that works best being watched in a communal setting, which are horror movies. And it's not a genre for everybody. You know, it's it's a genre that the people that are really into it are super into it. And uh, a lot of people that aren't into it, it, you won't be able to talk them into going to see a scary movie. It's always interesting to me to listen to how other people became horror movie nerds, how you got into the horror movie section at the video store or why you ended up going uh, to go spend your Friday and Saturday nights at the movies being scared out of your mind. So I will open this part of the conversation, Rebecca, by just uh, blatantly and directly asking you, what's your favorite scary movie? Oh man, I can never answer the the what's your favorite you know blank genre movie because it just changes every day. But last weekend I did head out to the Alamo Draft House uh, location in Brooklyn for Rialto Pictures uh, re-release remaster of The Wicker Man, and that's definitely like a top five movie for me, full stop. So I mean, and and I think like over half of the people in the audience hadn't seen the film before. You now, in case there's anybody. Uh, listening who hasn't seen it, I don't want to spoil spoil the ending, but it was it really worked well on the big screen. And we're talking about the original UK version of The Wicker Man, not the wonderful bee-oriented re-release starring. Not the uh, one Nicholas with Cage. bees or Nick Cage kicking ladies in the face. No. The, <laughs> the, uh, the OG with Christopher Lee. So I will I will say about that movie, the original Wicker Man, it's among my favorite movie-going experiences when it comes to a scary movie. I saw it originally in a prior re-release, I believe uh, at Film Forum here in New York City. First time ever seeing it on the big screen with an audience. Like you, it is one of my favorite movies Because it's ever. just, not, there's nothing in it that's overtly scary. But like, you know that it's nothing's going to be good for this man. It's folk horror. It's ambient horror where everything around what's happening in the movie just has this sense of foreboding in there rather than going straight into the gore, straight into the violence. I like that atmospheric horror. I mean, that takes me back to my roots of how I got into this genre to begin with. I never really think of myself as a horror movie person, but when I look at some of my favorite movies, they tend to be horror movies, especially when I think about movies that have a social or cultural relevance, something to say. I find the movies that are most effective at having something to say reflective about society tend to be genre movies, tend to be horror movies. At least that message is, is best conveyed through that genre for me. I have to think back in my own roots as a cinephile. I think my mom got me into this personally. I, I look back, obviously, in Mexican culture, there's this whole oral tradition around leyendas, we call them, like legends, which is just spooky stories with Mexican ghosts. That's basically what it is. So you have a bunch of like Mexican like ghost stories. It's a very mystical sort of culture, especially for a very Catholic country. There's a lot of ghost and Satan talk in Mexico as a culture. And I think we as a people are very predisposed to that type of horror. And the horror that works best for me has those elements, those mystical elements underneath the surface. Maybe one of the reasons why my favorite horror director isn't a horror director and it's a director that doesn't make horror movies, it's David Lynch. The sense of dread and terror that I think is most effective on the big screen for me comes from David Lynch. And it's not something you would, I would 
really think put in that genre in the in the video store section. So in terms of like classic horror movies, like what got me into it is my mom, I think having this background of, of Mexican culture, being predisposed and open to this genre, being a really big Hitchcock fan. The two that are all out and out horror movies are, are The Birds and Psycho. And I remember watching those when I must have been like 12, 13 years old, loving them and asking my mom for more. Like, where, where can I see more of this? But that was my original entry point to horror. And when it became mine, when it stopped being something that my parents liked and it started being something that I liked, was a seminal movie, I think, in my own life as a cinephile. It was that release of Scream, which completely opened the floodgates to this MTV teen generation horror. When I was becoming a teenager myself, and that launched me into the rabbit hole of liking horror movies. Of course, there's other things. I think the Goosebump books, when I was uh, first reading books in English when I was in elementary school, I think that helped. And uh, you know, TV shows like Are You Afraid of the Dark on Nickelodeon. I spent one year living in Battle Creek, Michigan when I was like uh, in 1995, I was like 10 years old. You know, those things kind of eased me into it, but it was really scream that launched me into the genre at a time when you start going to sleepovers. And maybe you're not getting into horror movies at the movies, but you are getting into horror movies when you go to your friend's sleepover party and you stay up watching way too many. <laughs> I want to ask you about it. That, that, that's my background of how I got into horror movies. How about yourself? What's your like origin story here as a horror nerd? Really, my, my cultural reference points are, are pretty much the same as yours watching Psycho on VHS uh, back when I was, I guess, early teen. I'm, I'm not really uh, really sure of the age there, but 2001, it's one of, it was one of my first movies that I really fell in love with, and I do consider it a horror movie. At least it scared the crap out of me. And yeah, Are You Afraid of the Dark, R.L. Stein, the Fear Street books. I got in trouble at a friend's sleepover once. I believe it was freshman year of high school because I had just seen this, uh, I'd seen this movie that I liked. It had just come out on VHS. I was excited to share it with my friends and my friend's parents were rightfully like, why did you bring the Blair Witch Project to this high school girl <laughs> freshman sleepover? Wait, what people, the hell? people stayed up during Blair Witch Project. To be fair, it's mostly like watch. a order looking at like leaves yeah. for most of it. Yeah, yeah, I think it works, but it works in a theater se setting. I remember sneaking into that movie at the UA Regal 12 in the falls in Miami, but I can't imagine seeing that in a sleepover. I mean, I didn't because it was the, the, the kibosh got put on it. Though I, I will say, I mean, even up to this point, I didn't really start getting into horror films as horror films, honestly, until moving up to New York and getting friends who were also into horror movies who could, you know, you can watch them communally. You can go to rep screenings, which, uh, which thankfully up here in New York, we have so many of. I go to the cinema to see old rep horror movies, probably, probably more, uh, more than anything else, because I didn't really feel that joy of it and that affection towards it until it became part of my friendships and part of a communal experience. And I mean, Horror and comedy go so well together. A lot of, you know me, I love bad horror movies. Like, just give it the worst possible direct-to-VHS trash, and I, I, I love it. It didn't really hit on the level that it does now until I started seeing some of these films in, in the theater. That's why like, I'm, I'm super excited for the Exorcist 50th anniversary release coming out on October 1st, because I've never seen it on the big screen. 
And that's interesting you bring that up because I think my own relationship with horror, just because it comes at an age when I have to sneak in to watch these movies at the cinema, it ends up happening through home video. And it ends up happening either at a sleepover or honestly, me like sneaking a rental like past my mom and being able to watch it by myself at like 1am on a Saturday night when everyone's asleep. A lot of the movies that I love in the genre end up being, I end up seeing for the first time like that. I remember watching the original Halloween. Some of those covers are just so iconic. Like, Yeah. There's no other experience like walking the aisles of a video store and finding a horror movie that you pick on the cover art alone. And that's what I did when I found a copy of John Carpenter's Halloween with the butcher knife and the jack-o'-lantern. And we talk about like seminal horror movies. Of course, Scream was, I think, a cultural phenomenon for people our age. That was when our family, like, we we wore that VHS out. (laughs) Scream was just constantly on. And it, it's a movie in, that celebrates horror movies, right? And there's so many references, and it's it's a whodunit, oh, it's a mystery flick. Of course, it? I didn't get any of it either. <laughs> what? But it sort of opens the door. It ends up being a gateway movie. And the gateway that that opened up to me was going into the horror section of my local video store, picking up a copy of John Carpenter's Halloween, and falling in love with a slasher in that regard. In a way that like maybe a lot of the franchises that came after Halloween are franchises that I don't really vibe with. I'm not a Friday the 13th guy. I'm not a Nightmare on Elm Street. I love Dreams and Dream Logic. Nightmare on Elm Street, none of those movies work for me. Yeah. I don't know I'm not why. A big, I'm not a big fan of the slashers in general. I like, uh, you know, give me a good like Rosemary's Baby. I mean, that's the top five, top three. I don't even know. But that's, I mean, it still works so damned well. It's, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, those movies are the ones that, that that really, really work for me. And then, like I was saying, in terms of once you get to be a certain age and you start understanding the world around you and, and contextualizing things in your own li- lived-in experiences and outside of your lived experiences through the fiction you're engaging with, it was always easier for me to connect horror movies with that. I think even two of the 1970s horror movies that I love most to this day I would still rank as probably the two movies that best encapsulate what's happening in the United States right now. I would say that's uh, John Berman's Deliverance and Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Texas Chainsaw, yep. I love it. I think those two movies are near perfect or as close to perfect as you can have in terms of going out and realizing a vision. And what they say about the United States culturally and socially, it resonated in the 70s. It still resonates today. Conversations about masculinity, about urban versus suburban, about displaced workers, about economies. There are so many great social aspects to both those films that they're still masterpieces if you rewatch them with or without an audience now. I feel like that. I mean, Rosemary's Baby and and Stepford Wives, for me, what they're saying about uh, just, you know, gender relations and and how those were, you know, changing at the time and, and, and everyone was trying to wrestle with how to square overarching, you know, big changes with changes in their own lives. I mean, those are still have not aged like a day. I still think they're they're exactly as relevant as they were before, based on books by the same author. So that makes sense. But yeah, I uh, I mean, I and I think we're seeing those movies still come out today. I mean, I feel like Nope is definitely that. Get Out is definitely that. You know, the films of the Barrios are definitely that. Not that there's uh, there's anything wrong with just a good old fun horror 
you know, explosion fest or, or, or war fest or something like that. I, I do like that too. But we, we are still seeing that I think some of the best movies that come out currently are horror films. And that have like a social edge to them. I think even recently, uh, you know, I think the 2016 election here in the United States was a very divisive election culturally. And some of the movies that came out around that time, I think the best movies that speak to what it was like to live in the United States around that time were horror movies that came out during that era. I think The Witch, definitely one of those movies that Uh I look back on. And I think there's movies like the Ari Aster movies. I think Hereditary is probably the best movie about the Trump era and what that meant socially in the United States for families, that divisiveness around that election where the scariest place to be in the United States was a dinner table with your relatives in 2016, in many ways. I think Hereditary nails that aspect of it, that generational tension between people, between those social and cultural norms. I love Hereditary for that reason. And of course, Ari Aster, you've got the best breakup movie of all time, Midsommar, coming up after he made uh, Hereditary, also a very recent film in that space. There's a lot of great titles that I think have, have given us so much. And these don't necessarily have to be huge blockbuster hits to go out and find an audience theatrically. And I think that's one of the reasons why the the genre thrives. Another reason why I think the genre thrives is we're talking about original films, but this is a genre that borrows from itself and remakes itself very often. And I think some of my favorite horror movies are remakes of other horror movies. And I want to go through some of them, but uh, on your end, what's on, what's on top? Oh man, I mean, I had the experience a few years back of Brooklyn Academy of Music, a double feature of the 40s Val Luton cat people. So obviously black and white, very, like he had a shoestring budget and stretched out. You don't, you don't really see anything overtly, but it's, it's incredibly scary. And then the Paul Schrader remake immediately after that, which as you can imagine, given it's Paul Schrader, does not have the subtle approach in <laughs> sexuality. Traders not is. known for subtlety. No, no. no the the filmmaker like, behind American Gigolo. Like, we're gonna, we're gonna so. add incest. We're gonna add nudity. We're gonna add just a whole bunch of stuff. In a way that's, I think, very specific to horror. Horror is very good at finding great remakes of titles. I think on top of my list has to be David Cronenberg's version of The Fly, which I think vastly I mean, improves the thing. on the original. The thing, again, going back to Carpenter, you know, these are movies that they see what the tensions were socially and culturally around the 1950s when they originally released. And these are 1980s remakes that redefine these movies and the way we think about them and modernize them in really interesting ways. Yeah, I think those are two fantastic, fantastic remakes. Another one that also goes back to the well in the 1980s is uh, Werner Herzog's version of Nosferatu with Klaus Kinski in the role. I think that's also a film that, imagine that homework assignment. Go back and remake, for a German filmmaker, go back and remake Nosferatu. Let's see how that turns out. And it works out perfectly in a complimentary way, right? Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1970s remake. Oh, that they're, I both, personally, they're both so good. They're both great. I would probably lean more towards the 70s remake. This is a movie that's been remade like 15 times. That 1970s version with uh, Donald Sutherland. Then there's there's other ones that have come out more recently. I think I will defend Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. Don, that's good. I was just thinking of that one. That is good. I think it's Zack Snyder's best film, personally. And I would, if you asked... It was good. If it, it, was wasn't his, it was an, if it wasn't his first, it was early. If you asked me to pick 
what the which version to rewatch between Romero's iconic original and Snyder's remake. I think Snyder's remake is a funner movie to rewatch. I'm not going to go into the better conversation, but nine out of ten times I'm going to pick the Dawn remake. I feel well, I, that's uh, another thing with horror films; they're so rewatchable. Like, I mean, Wicker Man rewatching it when you you know what's going to happen because you're you know you're so keyed up the first time. Maybe you're not really paying attention to everything. Like, and that's another reason why I mean they they tend to remain so prevalent in the cultural consciousness. Is like you can rewatch these movies over and over and over and over again in a way that I'm not sure is the same with any other genre, really. Yeah, not too many. Of course, Wicker Man being an example of, of one of the remakes that didn't work. There's plenty. I think, you know, uh, Psycho probably being the, the most famous failed uh, remake assignment when, when Gus Van Sant uh, went and, and basically did a shot-for-shot remake in color with Vince Vaughn and Anne Heche. Oof. That wasn't good. But no, sometimes you have these experiments work. I thought, again, very recently, I really liked Luca Guadagnino's uh, Suspiria remake. It's a very different movie than the Shallow original. Vastly different film, but I think very interesting. I find more interesting the remake than I do the original. I, I could never get into Giallo, honestly. I like it for the titles. I like it for the posters and the style, you know, for me, they're, they're very good looking films, but I could never, never really, really connect with them. So, you know, horror fan, but not necessarily of, of every, every little subgenre. And the, the last, uh, the last remake that I think that also really worked in the genre is, I don't know how you feel about this one. The original Let the Right One In, I think came out at, at a time when we were both living in New York. I remember watching it on its original release at the IFC Center, and it was a total... Uh, revelation to me. I was just, it was one of those experiences where you come out of a movie feeling you discovered something. And I was extremely apprehensive when there was a US remake with this guy named but Matt It was Reeves. recent. Like, it was recent. Like a right year or two after like, that, right? Yeah, it was Let Me In. And my God, that movie's still good. <laughs> like, I even like the remake uh, almost as much as the original. It's horror has that ability to do that, like I said, in a way that not too many uh, other genres can count on, on the remake quality being close, if not better, to the original in all of this. We've spoken about these before. I mean, was it last year we had, I mean, not, not exactly remakes, but additions to the franchise for both uh, Predator and Hellraiser. Predator, by the way, that uh, I think that deserves a spot in my top five horror movies. Like, I definitely, I love the hell out of Predator. It is such a well-paced, tight movie. Like, I love it. But Prey was great, too. And you had the idea just taking the concept. Okay, completely different characters. Yeah, it, it works. And it, it should have been, if anyone wants to put Prey on the big screen still today, tomorrow, 10 years from now, I'll see it. <laughs> Well, after this, you know, long aside going into why we love the genre so much, going into Spooky Season, of course, none two just came out. So there's, you know, a loose thematic link in this episode. Let's talk about our favorite uh, movie watching experiences with horror movies, whether that's at home or at the movies. Rebecca, let's start with you. What comes to mind when you think about, wow, I remember exactly where I was when I saw that movie? Oh, man, it's not a it's not anywhere near the level of quality that we've been talking about. But honestly, what comes to mind is one of the first movies I went out and, and saw with the quarter of friends I made in, in New York, 2015's Deathgasm, a New Zealand death metal horror that has, has a long fight scene, people like swatting each other with sex toys. 
great movie, of fun course. movie. Like, I don't know, that, that movie just became like, we still talk about it. So, I mean, that's not, that's do. not Rosemary's Baby. It's not The Exorcist, but Deathgasm is, is a really fun movie, actually. <laughs> well, if we talk about great experiences, a Deathgasm sounds like a fantastic experience, whether it's at the movies or at home. Daniel, what would be like your, your one horror movie that if you want, if you could see it on, in, on the big screen, like what's the bucket list? Like 70, IMAX, whatever the optimal format is for that particular movie, you know? 4DX. That's a very good question. I actually, I have a good answer to this one because it's, this is the best at home watching experience with a horror movie I've ever had. It was, um, you know, when you're at that age in high school, when it's like one of the last slumber parties, when like, it's clearly that like division point where any slumber party you have at this age, it's just going to be teenagers hooking up the entire time. So you kind of like stop having them officially, but only some people hook up at the slumber parties. That last slumber party, that period of my life, it was me and this girl I had a crush on in Miami. And it was like, everybody else was asleep and I knew I could make a move and get into makeout zone. So I decided to put in the most romantic movie I could. My first watching of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre oh, was man. a VHS version with a girl I had a crush on in this like sleepover in Miami. Did we she were the like last it? people awake. She clearly was waiting for me to make a move. I was like, I'm going to put on a scary movie. This is going to be my play. It was so good. I couldn't stop watching the Texas Chainsaw. She fell asleep. I was riveted. And I don't regret that for a second. I had a great time. To this day, it's probably my favorite experience is watching a movie that I'm just completely removed from everything around me, from my surroundings. And you're just hooked on what's happening on the screen. The issue of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, is that the entire time you're watching it at home, you're wondering what it would be like to see it on a beat up 35 millimeter print on a big screen. The entire time, that's what you're thinking. You, even as like a 15, 16 year old, as I was at the time, I couldn't stop thinking like, ooh, I bet a print of this would look wonderful. And that tells you something about me. I, I, <laughs> I have the 4K disc that I won at Bar Trivia and I can't play it because I don't have a 4K player. But I'm like, Texas Chainsaw needs the needs the grain. It needs the pops. You know, that's yeah. I, I would I would agree with that one. That would be near the top of my list as well. And then when I think of uh, movie going experiences, movies that I actually did get to see the first time with a paying audience at the movies, not a press screening. That doesn't count. I'm not going to put press screenings in there. It does not count. We are limited to the movies that came out during our generation. And like I said, I think I I, I fell in love with this genre as something I wasn't allowed to watch you know i'm i it felt like a little dangerous i'm getting away with something the feeling of seeing something you're not supposed to be seeing for a cinephile like ourselves is a central part of why we're attracted to horror movies that's exactly why we go watch them so when you become of age to go watch horror movies that excitement that never comes back it never returns but i did have it for one moment going to see uh, get out on opening weekend at the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn, I believe that's where I saw it. I had that feeling of being part of something. And the entire audience is participating and is in the bag for every twist and turn of that movie. It's a special moment that I don't think I'll ever forget. In the same way that anybody that saw The Exorcist during its original theatrical run, whether they liked it or not, they will never forget the cultural experience of seeing it in theaters. And more recently for me, I mean, uh, seeing Skinamarink, it's definitely like a more divisive movie because there aren't, it doesn't have tr scares in the traditional way, just, just you know, mood-wise, it's incredibly tense. And 
everyone in the theater was just like, you could hear a pin drop. You could tell everybody was just kind of like waiting for something to happen. It was, it was a really, like you could tell some of them didn't like the movie. <laughs> Maybe a lot of them <laughs> didn't like the movie, but everybody was into it. No, I actually didn't get to see uh, Skin and Marink. I know it played at the IFC Center uh, for quite a bit. And I love watching movies. It used to be the, the Waverly Theater. It's a movie theater. That's such an important movie theater for the horror genre. They had, when it was back in, was known as the Waverly, it, it had that midnight run of, uh, of Eraserhead. It turned Eraserhead into a cult movie. Turned uh, Night of the Living Dead, the original, the Romero original, into what it is, basically thanks to those uh, midnight screenings back in the early good, 1970s, good late too. 60s. Good yeah, fantastic, fantastic place. Yeah, it's. I would say if I were to pick a venue for a horror movie, it would be the IFC Center in New York City. But no, I didn't get to see a skin of a rink. And it's one of those things that I, would I still enjoy it if I watched it at home? I'm not sure. Even though I say that, I, I've watched most of the horror movies I love at home. Uh, I'll give it a shot one of these days when I'm feeding my child at 2 a.m. You know, it's probably the best time to see horror movies now. I held off on watching Godzilla for the longest time because I was like, no, I'm going to wait for it to be in the cinema. Like, I'm going to experience it for the first time on the big screen. And then I eventually, you know, cracked. Yeah, you caved. You caved. It's hard. And Rebecca and I could go on and on and on talking about horror movies all day, especially on a slow news week here in Exhibition. No new wide releases this weekend. Not a huge weekend in the market uh, in the last frame. But we do have a new title coming out to theaters in limited release this Friday. It'll be coming out to theaters uh, and expanding throughout the coming weeks. That is Dumb Money, and we have its director, Craig Gillespie, joining me here in the feature segment of the Box Office Podcast. This interview was recorded before the actors and writers strike. It's important to say that. That has been affecting our industry. You can find it in our print edition of the magazine that came out uh, last month. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Dumb Money director Craig Gillespie after the break. Well, uh, let me start the conversation, Craig, by uh, just saying in uh, CinemaCon in Las Vegas this April, the big convention with the exhibitors, at the Sony presentation, when Dumb Money came on the screen, I don't think a lot of people knew that the movie was coming. I don't think a lot of people had that on the top of their most excited, most looking forward lists. By the time we left Las Vegas back in April, I think Dumb Money was in the short list of everybody that, that I spoke with or most people I spoke with coming out of the show as one of the titles they couldn't wait to see more of. So those, that initial, that first impression, which is so hard to win over when you're in a room competing with The Rock showing up with Tom Cruise jumping out of yeah. mountains. Listen, your footage was really near the top of the list from the people I spoke with. Great first impression. Were you there in Vegas? Did you hear anything about it? I was, it was a pretty quick decision. I was like, you know, Sonny called the week before and said, you want to go on? I was like, great. And they, and they said, well, we'll show like three minutes of footage. What do you want to show? And I was like, let's just show the first three minutes of the movie. Because in that first three minutes, you meet all the characters. And it's just it sort of just launches you like out of the gate. And just kind of sets like a lot of the tone of the film and the fun of the film. You know, it is definitely aggressive, but I, I sort of didn't want to shy away from that. You know, well, uh, the movie's practically finished, as you mentioned. Uh, we're looking forward to a September release. But let's go back to when you first heard about this project. Of course, you first heard about the headlines. Uh, this GameStop phenomenon, probably before the Ben Messerich book even came out. Can you do you recall when you first heard about this phenomenon in the news? It was 24 at the time. My son was living with us at that point during COVID, and he'd been like 
following Wall Street bets from very early on. So he was always sort of talking about it and commenting on it and just the whole culture of it. You know, it's like a, there's a definite sort of aggressive, you know, un-PC culture to the, the initial like core group of the Wall Street bets people. And, and so he was tracking all of that and then he got involved in investing and he was on that roller coaster and he uh, he actually ended up doing very well with an option call like, you know, the day before it skyrocketed that like worked out great for him. And then, you know, it's like I'd be like doing stuff and working and he'd come like running in and it's like Elon Musk just tweeted game stomp, everybody's all nuts. Like, you know, it was like it was blow by blow. And then when, you know, when it started happening that uh there was a freeze with Robin Hood, again that commentary like just helped frustrated and like pissed off and everybody was in the community and outraged by it and then the rally that started to happen again in that very intense period i mean he was literally checking his phone every three minutes you get up at three you go to bed at three in the morning you get up at six in the morning chef was going on you know before markets open and so i really found that that intensity and that emotional roller coaster i lived through it with him mm -hmm. i was working on a, a different film with rebecca and lauren our writers and uh, that film suddenly collapsed. And uh, the next day, this is, like, I guess, like six months later or four months later, the next day they sent over the script, Dumb Money. I loved it. It's like I was projecting a lot of that energy and emotion that I that I lived through when I when it was happening with my son. I loved the whole like, where they'd set it up and weaved between all the characters and that they really, you know, they had this gray area to it. It's like it really, it really is sort of encouraged Everybody's participation in a way, and I think it brings along your own beliefs and perspective they, that enables you to sort of like you know choose your path as you watch the film and who you're rooting for. I thought they did a beautiful dance with that, and we just dived right into it. Yeah, and it it was a really quick turnaround. It seems like we all have pandemic brain, where it's still like March 2020. That was last week, but it was also last decade. Uh, but it feels like everything came together so quickly. Can you tell me about that uh, production cycle, that pre-production cycle? It seems to have been fast-tracked, and you were able to get a great cast to join the project rather quickly. It was very fast. <laughs> it's like with, as with every feature or the, in the film business, there's a house of cards, so you're, you're thinking it's happening, it's happening, it's not happening. But um, we had a very tight window just with my schedule as well. So once I decided that a new Black Bear came in and... Uh, set up the financing for us but it was a you know it was an independent movie and it was tight and once i decided let's go for it with six weeks back on this and uh within that we were still constantly rewriting those there was a lot of stuff that we were addressing it's like you know the whole sec third act was something to be like worked on during that period getting to work paul dano was already attached with me at that starting game as with seth Rogen. we had those two guys and uh, there was a lot of collaboration with and figuring out like you know the arc of that character and that journey and so those scenes were constantly being rewritten in the prep and i just started calling a lot of people that i've i've crossed paths with being in contact with almost made films with you know like pete and i almost made a movie together and i called him and Sebastian obviously had a relationship with and i called him and uh nick offerman who i worked with i called him i just started calling everybody that i was uh you know Cross paths with over the years. Anthony Ramos again. He was attached to a film with me that we were trying to get going, and so amazingly, everybody you know, was up for up for the time of it. And what was the most complicated part was, you know, it ranged in time from three to five 
except for Paul, who was eight days. So just figuring out that having that schedule when they had windows and mm-hmm. all of that talent, when they could come in, you know, wait, Pete put two days and four hours. I can, I can imagine. It's, it's never easy making a film, but it, under these circumstances, which is something that was in the news last month, to come up with a movie that's going to come in two months, it's always uh, stressful. But it's also, I think, a tricky experience uh, for you guys working with your actors to depict people that are actually out there, that are in the news, that you turn on CNBC or Bloomberg, you see their interviews. Could you go into that aspect of making this film? Because having that freedom of it being a fictional story, you can dive right in. But you've done this in a half with Itonia, right? Exactly. It's a, we try, we stay very, you know, try really stay very, you have to. Yeah. Stay very loyal to what the truth is that's out there and what, and what's being, what you can verify. And Rebecca, Angelo, and, and Lauren, Blown were investigative reporters with the Wall Street Journal, and they say they have a real depth and understanding of that. So, as we went through this process, anything but that we were writing, everything that we uh, looked at, we had to be able to verify it in either interviews or tweets or posts. So, so that you know, it's like we say very loyal to what was happening because you know we have to from a from a legal standpoint. So you know, down to like all the verbiage, you know, it's like as it was said, you know, where. You know, which Sebastian's in the closet is like maybe now's a good time for me to talk to Ken Griffin. Like that, that was a text to be verified, you know? Yeah. So now it's always exciting to, to see these projects come together. In structuring the film, it's also tricky because, as you mentioned, with the third act of the movie, you're dealing with an SEC saga that is going on right now, practically, right? The, the, you have to adapt your screenplay and where the characters end up basically on a day by day basis. How did you guys? figure that aspect of the film out to not write yourselves into a corner structurally and give that film the option to open up or go in different directions very early on it's like and as i started doing the research on on rory kitty aka deep fucking value you know it's a, he's done a last post that moment like when you saw when you see the like the innocence and the enthusiasm and the genuine like humanity that he has as he starts out doing these posts and then when you see his testimony at the sec Wait, he's got, you know, he's still like doubling down and committed to his position, but he's being very careful about his wordage because there's a lot of scrutiny on him right now. He's like become like the focal point of this whole movement and just how like measured everything is. It's like that is such an interesting journey of that character to get to that point. So they like, very early on, I was like, I think, you know, his testimony at the SEC should be the end of the film. And then, you know, a couple of months later, he does his final post and we're still. Have not heard from him, so it's felt like a very natural place to end the film. Well, I was going to ask. I haven't seen the film yet. Just what we saw at CinemaCon. Were you guys as you were putting this together? Did you try to bring in any elements of the phenomenon outside of GameStop, or how did that come or not come into the production of the song? The the SEC investigation, you know, really, uh, Keith Gill was the only sort of person outside of the corporation that was testifying. It felt like a very natural progression to focus on his on on that story of GameStop because that was the center focus for that first SEC investigation. So we so we actually stopped there and like let that be the like let him be the, the emotional center point to this film. This very well could have been a limited series in a streaming platform, right? We've seen it with uh, stories like WeWork or uh, or the Ferranos uh, series. They end up on Hulu, six to eight episodes. Was that a viable avenue? When did you realize that this was a theatrical motion picture as opposed to just a streaming series that you could get a star and go to streaming with? 
this was a, a truly an independent film, and obviously that that sounds maybe possibly surprising, being that Sony's releasing it. But you know, we got the financing and shot the movie, and then you know, you sell the distribution rights, and Sony had been incredibly supportive and came in and and you know bet on it, which was amazing, and that was honestly the hope. It's like I, you know, I love the independent world. I love being able to go out and sell it. And and betting on ourselves basically that we can make a like make a good film and and hopefully end up in this place ideally exactly where we hoped we would, which was the partner like Sony who would like really can lean in and do a good theatrical release. So from the start, this was a story that was meant for the big screen, that was meant for the theatrical it's experience. A very, very tricky thing in this climate. It's almost extinct. This size film, trying to find an audience in the theater, but I was cognizant of that in terms of like. Just with the actors that we have, they're so much fun. They're so engaging. They, they they have a lot of goodwill. And, you know, I wanted it to be like a intense but really fun ride as well. You know, like I want, there was this online community, obviously, that this whole movement, this like dissatisfaction happening, this yearning to connect. And it felt like a perfect opportunity to try and bring that to the theater and, and make it a community experience again. As a moviegoer, what can moviegoers that maybe don't know too much about the story, what can they expect in buying a ticket to see Dumb Money when it opens in theaters? You don't even know about stocks. <laughs> that's a good That's a good way of selling it, by the way. That's good. Yeah, it's like, it is really, it fits as David and Goliath's story. It's about the common person feeling like marginalized and how they all rally together and, and had this moment where they could basically give the middle finger to the big guy. After spending so much time with this story, with this project, do you think there's an end game? Do you think there was a reform to all of this that went down? There has not been a reform. It's like, <laughs> at this point, maybe this will help keep tanning that. I think that you should have a certain amount of outrage at the end of the film. That was the hope that, like, you know, to feel like that there still was like things that happened that felt unfair, unjustified. And just as they put it, you know, on people's awareness so that they can, you know, so keep being outspoken about it. And that was Craig Gillespie, director of Dumb Money, coming out in limited release this Friday from Sony Pictures Entertainment. The movie is going to be expanding in the coming weeks throughout the month of September, so don't forget to catch it in theaters. On behalf of myself and my colleague, Rebecca Pauly, thank you for joining us here on the Box Office Podcast. New episodes coming out every Thursday. We're back here next week. But I won't be. I am gone for like three months. I'll see you guys in 2024. I am out on paternity leave. I'm going to go do the, the dad thing for like a solid three months. We'll see how that works out. I'll talk to you guys really at the end of the year. And Rebecca, Polly, and our colleagues here at Box Office Pro will be tackling the show moving forward. Thank you again for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>